trying to make it real compared to what this week on the Janice Adams Show, a special COVID-19 hashtag staying home edition. Yes, the sound is a little off, but the message is clear. A really interesting conversation with Mike Osterhout. This piece is sort of taking the same form, only now we have race involved mm -hmm. and, and a, a history that can be uncomfortable when you find out you come from a family of generational slave owners conceptual artist, writer, family ancestry researcher, bearer of amazing surprises, Mike Osterhout. You're hanging up your tambourine, bury yourself in your magazine, looking like any other day with the bright blue sky. First, the news. Trying to make it real compared to what... A man of Dutch ancestry who dates the history of his family in America to 1653. Researching his family history, he happened upon a name, Charles Osterhout, and later a photo by a lion of Harlem Renaissance photography, James Vanderzee. These Osterhouts are black. He's white. What? Who? Wow. How are they all related? So begins a quest, an adventure into family, photography, and the history of America that brings my guest to us today. Mike Osterhout, welcome to the show. Thank you, Janice. Let me just start with a question, and the question is this. Who did the shirt on the line belong to? Dollar sixty-four. <laughs> Well, that is the $64 question, which it says right on that photograph. And I thought it could very well have been uh, a Carnegie or a Vanderbilt or one of the many rich people that lived in Lenox uh, during the Gilded Age. And that's when the Osterhouts had their service industry uh, in Lenox. But recently, uh, I've talked to uh, Donna Vanderzee, and she thought it was James's um, shirt on the line that he took home to get laundered by his aunts. So I don't know. So here we are with the family story. The photo is actually a photo of? Of the Osterhouts. The Black Osterhout. The Black Osterhout. Osterhout family. Yes. Taken by... James Vanderzee. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a major exhibit finally at the Met, Harlem on My Mind, that right. featured his work and essentially brought him back from near obscurity, which he should not have been obscure yes. at all. Right. But um, there we are. Yeah. He taught himself photography very early on uh, when his house didn't even have electricity. So he's, he's working as a photographer as a kid. Uh, in Lenox, and then moved to Harlem in 1905, I think. And so the, the Harlem Renaissance was probably pretty much the, the 1920s into the 30s a little bit. And he had a very successful uh, uh, photographic studio, uh, thought of himself as an artist, but never was really uh, thought of within uh, the art world canon at that time period and continued working into his 90s 
Uh, Harlem on my mind, I think, was 68. So he was rediscovered or really discovered by the art community at that point. And we'll come back to the story of James Van Zee because it is so pivotal here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also gives us literally a window and a picture on the era that other people can go and see as well because yes. of his work. But this happening upon Charles Osterhout, what were you doing before you came upon that name? Well, I had started another project uh, working on the other side of my family, which was the Jennings side. And it turns out both sides of my family, uh, uh, the Jennings side from England and the Osterhout side from Holland, uh, came in the 1600s. And I had no clue of, of this vast history. And they came to Goshen and Kingston. So I still live in here in Sullivan County, uh, within 50, 60 miles of where 13 generations, uh, the Osterhouse landed in Kingston. So I was starting this one project, uh, which is called Fancestor, which was basically started with a murder of, uh, of my great, 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 great uncle, Richard Jennings, uh, in Goshen, supposedly the first murder for hire uh, to ever be prosecuted in uh, in New York State, and that project led me into with the internet these days. You just start googling, 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 and see what comes up. And before you know it, the day is gone. Yeah, the day is gone, and you've gone down six different rabbit holes. So, mm-hmm. so one after finishing Fancestor, one of the most interesting. Uh, rabbit holes that I went down was the the Lennox Osterhouts. So recently, I've gone back into that, and and working at it uh, as an artist. I'm a visual artist, conceptual artist. So working it as a social sculpture. So I'm I'm uh, reaching out to uh, like the church in uh, in Lennox, the church on the hill, mm-hmm. where. Uh, uh, the Osterhouts were janitors or sextons, as they were, as mm-hmm. they're called in the church. My grandfather was also a janitor, so we find all these commonalities. So I'm approaching it centered uh, uh, as a difference in race, but approaching it as a commonality, as there's so many commonalities in the way I grew up uh, in a small town in Montgomery, uh, the same way James Vanderzee grew up in Lenox, moving to the city, uh, working as an artist, a lot of uh, different things uh, that, that resonate through this gigantic time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really what turned me on to to reinvestigating what I was doing two, three years ago. And even the commonality, you say that your families came t- to Goshen and to, um, and to Kingston, Kingston. Mm-hmm. and of course that is territory for Dutch West India Trading Company, mm-hmm. and, and yep. um, who the company that essentially colonized the area and the Hardenberg patent comes mm-hmm. up, which yep. we can talk about for people who, who don't know about that. And But we have that commonality in that that Dutch industry that was taking place at that point, colonizing the Americas, displacing Native Americans, and 
displacing Africans by the, the Dutch had three coasts that they named for the primary um, product of each of those and their most um, their, their most profitable was Benin, which they called the Slave Coast. Right. So that brings, that's the commonality right. of even how both sides of the family get to the United States. You know, um, a while ago we put out a call, and I'm so happy um, that we're doing this show because the Janice Adams Show is a program about race, every race, and courage. And so we've been looking to doing family stories, just family stories. Yours happens to have the interesting intersection that you knew nothing about. But we'd be interested in your family, period, because it is a story. It's a family story that depicts courage, tenacity, you know, and here you are 13 generations later um, talking about it. So tell us more about the side of the Osterhout's that you did know. What did you know growing up about your family? Well, I come from a very tight, uh, very clannish family, really, uh, but small. Uh, the way we looked at it, our family started with my grandfather. Uh, so it didn't go back much farther than that because my great-grandfather and grandmother were divorced. So so there was, uh, um, I don't know, um, uh, we didn't look very kindly on the Osterhouts mm. because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandmother, Elsie Decker, was left with five kids in the 1920s to raise. So nobody really spoke well of Andrew Osterhout. So therefore, I didn't know much, nor did I care much about the Dutch history or mm-hmm. how many generations or anything. My grandfather always said we were horse thieves and farmers, <laughs> and I'm sure we were, but that's about the beginning and the end of it. Mm. Uh, the Jennings side was a little bit more merchant class, uh, you know, mayors and of small towns and things like that. And on that side, we had uh, uh, W.H. Seward who was S E W A R D Seward. Seward. Oh, Seward. Related to the upstate New York Sewards? Yes. Yes. Ah, okay. From Goshen. Okay. So so, so W H talk about those two so, so, we so can that's make the why uh, initially mm-hmm. I, I got so involved in uh, uh, the Jennings side, because it's more historical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can follow uh, William Henry Seward yes. all over the place. In fact, we visited his home on a trip that in, we in did Auburn. to upstate New York. Right. So when mm-hmm. Seward was a teenager, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Jennings was, was murdered. Uh, there was five involved in the conspiracy to murder him. Uh, two of them were hanged. Uh, Seward uh, uh, disappeared, went to disappeared at the time of the murder, and uh, ended up in Georgia. Um, so then, uh, you know, I got into this kind of detective novel type of thing yeah. of trying to find out what hit, how much he knew, when he knew it, all these and things. Did he know why someone was trying to kill him? 
not someone wasn't trying to kill him. Someone was trying to kill uh, Richard Jennings. Oh, and, I'm and sorry. Yes, yes. and uh, uh, yes, it was it was family. Uh, mm-hmm. He was he was basically. Uh, um, you know, the conspiracy that involved, like I said, five people involved his nephew. Uh, it, was a, it was a family murder, but because it was a conspiracy, it was very unique at the, for the time period. It was 1818. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so in Fancestor, I, I get into that murder. I start to follow Seward and also Jack Hodges, a black man who was arrested and basically had the whole thing pinned on him. But he turned state's evidence and turned the tables. So, so that brought out all kinds of uh, uh, issues on uh, prisons. I, I was able to, to follow Jack Hodges into Newgate Prison in New York, then up to Auburn. Mm-hmm. You know, so all these, these coincidences and, uh, uh, of place and time uh, kept the narrative going. You know, you mentioned Jack Hodges being charged with the murder, right? And then mm-hmm. turning state's evidence. What I find interesting about that is that well into the late 20th century, a black person was not allowed to testify against a white person if the white person said otherwise. And, right. and you know, so here they are. It's very unique. It is. It's a very unique circumstance. And, uh, I'm still uh, uh, not satisfied with what I've got. I'm still working on it. Mm-hmm. Or, or actually, I've, I've set it aside for a bit, uh, you know, so I can come at it fresh again. Now I'm doing this other project, uh, you know, on the on the family portrait. Yes. You know, and this project is called Family Portrait 1926, which is the name of the portrait that James Van Der Zee took so the, of the Osterhouse. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, so when you are looking at your your known family, mm-hmm. what is it that actually turns the dial for you that says you should do that? Because you didn't really grow up thinking about your family history. I don't know. I think it's a combination of... Uh, uh, what you're bombarded with all the time with Ancestry.com and everybody's okay. into it. Uh, age, and it, age. It's the post-roots age? Yeah. It's, okay. it's, and also my age as mm-hmm. I get older. For some reason, it seems like a lot of people get into their 60s and mm-hmm. and start delving into this stuff mm-hmm. for for a myriad of reasons. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I said, my my first interest was because of this murder, and I thought I could, you know, have some fun and, and really dig into it. But it sent me in so many different directions, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And the Osterhout family, which I thought had absolutely no history, you know, has a very deep history. One of the Osterhouts, Anne Osterhout, married uh, Thomas Edison's youngest son, Theodore. <laughs> so here's, uh, you know, the black Osterhouts working in Lenox. A white Osterhout is marrying uh, Thomas Edison's son at the same time, where an, another Osterhout is in Texas, uh, uh, you know, and, and later on uh, uh, was assistant surgeon general uh, during the building of the Panama Canal. So there's there's historical things going on all around uh, this family that has so many tentacles. You know, it's a very large Dutch family. When we come back, more with our guest, Mike Osterhout. He is talking about family, photography, his life as an artist, 
and a history of America, one we very rarely get to hear. Back after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what? Trying to make it real compared to what? Everyone has a story to tell, but some stories are more fascinating and complex than others. We're here with my guest today, Mike Osterhout. Mike, we started earlier with talking about this photograph, a very pivotal photograph that you found um, by the legendary Harlem Renaissance photographer, James Vandersee, which pictured a branch of your family you did not know about, an African-American branch of your family. So tell us about the, I guess, scion of that family, not actually, but in terms of your discovery of them, Charles Osterhout. Who was he? Uh, Charles Osterhout was a delegate from Hudson. I can't remember the exact name of the convention, but it was something like the Colored Citizens Convention in Albany in 1840. And this convention was run by Austin Stewart. Uh, also from Rochester, mm-hmm. and and so that that one clue uh, stood out of like why would there be a white oster hat at this convention? Mm-hmm. And I think it was Harry Bradshaw Matthews. I think it was in his book that I read it, mm-hmm. and and so that got me digging into the African-American Osterhouse and seeing what I could come up with. And this one particular image came up of the Osterhouse. And it, the three people. The three people. It was uh, Maddie, David, and, and Estelle. And that was in Roland Barthes' uh, book, Camera Lucida. And Camera Lucida is this, you know, seminal uh, book on photography written by Mm -hmm. a a French semiotician. So it was just like, what's going on here? And and I thought it was uh, a random family of Osterhouts that happened to be in Harlem and and were photographed by James Vanderzee. It took some more digging to find out that these were his actual relatives. Well, to stick with Charles Osterhout for for the moment, Mm -hmm. it is... I found it particularly interesting that um, even now you say the the colored convention of the time. And in my book, Glory Days, I actually wrote about that convention oh, really? or the start of those conventions. And I'm going to read it because it is um, instructive of the time mm-hmm. and put things in perspective. And interestingly, also, you mentioned... Austin Stewart, and we did a whole show on Austin Stewart. (laughs) Yes. Who is Austin Stewart and why should we care about him? And he's a fascinating character. He's a fascinating character. So on my website, I'll put a link to that show from this one so people can go back and find it. But this is from my book, Glory Days, and the date is April 2nd. In 1830, with the, quote, offer of Liberian emigration that was rejected by blacks, whites had begun a campaign pain to force their exit. In some cases, outright terrorism was used. 
People would be dragged from their homes in the middle of the night and given 30 lashes until they agreed to emigrate. In other states like Ohio, legal, quote, remedies were applied, such as enforcing outdated laws that called for blacks to register their residence and post a prohibitive bond of $500 to remain in the state. $500 then. $500 even today is a lot of money for certain people. As thousands of Cincinnati blacks prepared to comply with the expulsion order, a terrorist white mob rioted through the black quarter of town to, quote, help the blacks move out faster. In Baltimore on April 2, 1830, in response to the trauma and isolation felt by blacks on a local level, Hezekiah Grice had a great idea to hold the first national convention of African Americans. And that's what it was called. He sent letters to well-known blacks in each of the free states requesting their opinions on the need for and feasibility of his plan. Five months later, he received a letter from Philadelphia's Bishop Richard Allen, co-founder of the AME Church, and one of the greatest men of his day. Grice immediately set out from Baltimore to Philadelphia to meet with Allen. The bishop handed Grice a petition from New York in support of the convention. My dear child, he told Grice, who was just 29 at the time, we must take some action immediately or else these New Yorkers will get ahead of us. And with that, the National Convention Movement was born. The first of them would be held in Philadelphia on September 20th, 1830. Over the course of American history, it is easy to overlook these steps to our political maturity, easy to discount them because complete freedom is not yet ours. But even if our ideas and actions have yet to move mountains, they have certainly moved us as a people, uniting us to accomplish a shared agenda. And one of the things I want to mention with that is that within five years of that, because of the terror that was going on, the conventions ultimately voted to remove the name African American from their institutions. Mm. They considered themselves as African. Then they considered themselves as African-American. And then they had to vote, and they retreated to the more acceptable to unacceptable white ideas um, notion of calling themselves colored. So when you speak of the 1840 convention and and New York, it is completely you know, an outgrowth of, right, of right. that. And even that word, I grew up with that word, you know, and and it's uncomfortable to say colored for mm-hmm. me at this point. You mm-hmm. know, even, even when you're talking about this historical context, mm-hmm. it, it's uncomfortable. And, and, you and know, it should be. And it, and it should because be, exactly. It, it, you know? Because, and even today, as people... A kind of migrating to this idea of calling ourselves people of color, I understand the reason for it because it's about a continuity and it's about an alliance. Right, right. But at the same point, it is one step from white and non-white, which is another part of that conversation, and a very small step from the idea that you have no identity at all except 
in relation to how white society sees you right. at the time. And if we were all called colored, it would be different, which we all are. Which, you, you know, which we all are. Yeah, we all are. There's a different context right there. Yeah. In your research, you make a very interesting comment that, truth be told, Americans of every color in the United States, if we told the truth, we'd all consider ourselves mixed race. Yes, of course. Of course, you know. And especially 13 generations deep in in America, you know, how could we not be, Mm -hmm. you know? But at the same time, you know, like going back to these Ancestry.com commercials that that show, you know, (laughs) you find one little, you know, uh, spark of of Indian, uh, of Native American blood, and all of a sudden your your basement is, is, uh, you know, decorated with uh, dream catchers. You know, when they don't, you know, like like in reality, that could have been through rape, could have been through all kinds of, of uh, you know, horrible mm-hmm. historical, you know, trauma. Uh, but but there it's celebrated in this, in this very, what I find very strange and uncomfortable way, mm-hmm. you know, and sold, you know, yes. sold to back, back to the American public. Interesting, you know, with, with the mixed race thing, um, I, when I read that, in, in your work, I was saying, well, of course I am. I don't usually think of myself, especially as a dark-skinned person, I don't usually think of myself as a mixed-race mm-hmm. person. But when I realize it, of course I am, not only because of, of the history, and, and that is important, I mean, well, people are people, so the idea that they had children together should not be novel. Um, but not just for that fact, but because in America had that one drop rule that if you even had one drop of, quote, black blood, whatever that is, you're considered black. So, uh, you know, just by default, I never considered myself that. But on the other hand, one of the things that really engaged me in your work and this story of the Osterhouts the black Osterhouts and the white Osterhouts, is that my own family is of Dutch ancestry, mm-hmm. being from from the Dutch colonized Caribbean island of St. Eustatius. Right. Um, and so that just made your work more personal. Mm-hmm. So tell me more about myself, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I would never presume, Janice. <laughs> or what you should say is, I'll never tell. <laughs> <laughs> so more about the Osterhouts, um, both sides of the Osterhout family. Uh huh. Um, in in your work, you mentioned uh, you mentioned this whole um, issue of. Um, Lenox, Massachusetts. What was Lenox, Massachusetts? Why was it kind of a, a a galvanizing point culturally at the time when when you're discovering the um, the black family was there? Well, I didn't know anything about Lenox uh, at that time when I discovered it, 
but you know you don't have to look far to 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 read of the the gilded age in in Lenox and even though Lenox is is a, a small town and uh, you know on its Wikipedia page it says up, upscale which I think is a euphemism for for white yeah. uh, uh, I went over there and and there's there's no black black people at all in in Lenox that I could uh, find in mm-hmm. in a day over there. They've been grandfathered out out tax with tax with taxes and with, zoning and all that. Yeah, kind of. with with everything since mm-hmm. say 1900. Yeah. You know when when the 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 Gilded Age faded. Uh, that's when the Vanderzees moved to um, to Harlem, but the Osterhout stayed. And and what was interesting to me is that they um, they they basically uh, it was a it was a three family compound of of uh, Egberts, Vanderzees, and Osterhaus. They had three clapboard houses sitting side by side in Lenox, and they were the black service community that all these ultra-rich people were coming, the, the plutocrats were coming from Boston and New York, the, the Vanderbilts, the Carnegies, Edith Wharton. They came with gigantic uh, staffs of, of chauffeurs, butlers, uh, maids, mm-hmm. and the Osterhouts uh, augmented that. And they had a laundry, they had a bakery, uh, but they were autonomous. Uh, they they existed on their own, and and were very much like like the same. Even though they were doing better than the White Osterhouts in the same time period, like in Montgomery, my great grandfather was a, was a seamster and a farmhand. He was working poor. Uh, my grandfather was probably the first to become middle class. So. So this this uh, idea that uh, like you know uh, uh, there was not a black middle class I- I- in the country, I- I- there was, and and these Osterhouts and Vanderzees were indicative of that. These uh, Osterhouts and Vanderzees and Egberts were indicative of of not an aspirationally white uh, family, but a, a middle-class family. Now, you're making that point because of something Roland Barth Because wrote. of Roland Barth and his, his kind of missing the Tell point. Tell us about the book well, and, the, and why the, that comment uh, comes up. You know, the, the Barth looks at this particular photograph as... Mm-hmm. Tell us who Ro- Roland, Roland Barth, Barth is. is uh, 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 he's dead now, but a very famous French semiotician. Great writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book is more about his writing than photography. So he's picking apart each one of these photographs. And and there's a group of photographs uh, throughout Camera Lucida. One, the one by James Van Der Zee, he picks apart and makes a lot of assumptions that that are just plain false like what like this aspiration this family is dressed to be aspirationally white mm-hmm. you know so so other scholars have have also taken issue with this and 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 it's and it's true cuz they are not aspirationally white they they are Middle class, and at this point, generationally middle class, you know, because David Osterhout came over, the grandfather, he came over from New Baltimore, New York in 1860. 
so so by eight, uh, 1926, when the photograph is taken, uh, they've been very successful in operating in the country. And something also that uh, Austin Stewart uh, recommends uh, to many uh, black individuals is that they stay in the country and that and that they have farms and they and and uh, you know instead of going into the service industry in the mm-hmm. cities, uh, Stewart talks about you know. There's another path here, mm-hmm. and and the problem with that is is isolation, is that you know if you're one black farmer in a, in an area where everybody else is white, you could be a target, and mm-hmm. and so these three families band together, you know, for a sense of safety, but also they become very successful in in doing what they're doing and servicing this ultra-rich community. So it's a rarefied existence. It doesn't exist in too many little towns. A rarefied existence. More with our guest, Mike Osterhout, when we return after the break here on The Janice Adams Show. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show today with our guest, Mike Osterhout. He is an artist, a musician, and he's brought us a really interesting story of family that really speaks to the heart and soul of the country with all its complexities and intertwined relationship stories, history. In the three years it took me to research and write Fancestor, my dive into family history, the frenzied desire to know one's roots has chilled in America. Ancestry.com ads appear less frequently on TV, and the zeitgeist seems to have moved on. Maybe in finding what we were looking for in our DNA strains, the itch was sufficiently scratched and no more need be said. Or maybe I'm just projecting. If you were white and kept score over the centuries, you quickly realized your ancestral sins overwhelmingly outweighed your glories. It wasn't even close. Historical spin was your only refuge. You clung to the we treated our slaves like family defense. If, on the other hand, you were of mixed race sharing in those tortured histories of victimhood as well as the crimes of the sadistic oppressor, Which side would you blame? The white side, of course. Then you realize that an African-American or white American of European descent can rarely claim pure bloodline anywhere or at any time in the United States. In reality, we are all of mixed race to some degree. In my case, it's taken 13 generations of something close to inbreeding to get to my relatively pure, nativist whiteness. There's plenty of guilt to go around. But if, like me, you discover a separate branch of your family tree that seems to be grafted intact through slavery, that develops on its own, apart from the massive Dutch trunk, an Osterhout in name only 
given or taken, what should your response be? Should it be the quiet shame of descending from white generational slave owners, or the articulated pride of knowing your surname had another history, not so dear by blood, singularly unique and separated by race? I'll choose the latter. I came across the African-American branch of the Osterhout family tree while stumbling blindly about the internet researching Fancestor. A Charles Osterhout came up who had been recorded as a delegate from Hudson, New York to the State Convention of Colored Citizens held in Albany in the summer of 1840. Wait, what? Only a black man could have been a delegate to this convention. From all the genealogical digging I had done, marrying the odd Italian seemed to be the Osterhout's idea of racial diversity. This was a revelation. Further investigation revealed the marriage of Quash and Caddy Osterhout, both listed as free in New Baltimore, New York in 1825. That's where the trail back in time went cold. So I began to follow these black Osterhouts forward, knowing I had discovered something much more interesting than an Ancestry.com match of another Dutch farmer. My eyes are opened. Little is known of Charles Osterhout other than his delegacy to that Albany convention. The convention was convened by Austin Stewart, a Rochester grocer, newspaper publisher, and abolitionist of the First Order. Charles Osterhout was obviously a part of the black political intelligentsia in the Catskills, yet there is no other mention of a black Osterhout in New York until 1860. David L. Osterhout, very possibly a relative of Charles, left the western side of the Hudson River in 1860, bound for Lenox, Massachusetts. According to anecdotal accounts, he was a carpenter and an expert horseman. This was the infancy of the Gilded Age, the cottage era in Lenox, Mass. There was plenty of money to be made by a hard-working, enterprising young man, even if he was black. How did I learn this? Through Roland Barth's book, Camera Lucida. More precisely, Barth put me on the path headed down this rabbit hole. Soon after I discovered Charles Osterhout, I started searching for black, African-American, quote-unquote, Negro and colored Osterhouts in the 19th and 20th centuries. An image popped up of a 1926 studio portrait shot by the famous Harlem Renaissance photographer James Vanderzee. This photo, Family Portrait 1926, was reprinted in Barth's book, and later scholarship identified the family as the Osterhouts. This was not only tangible proof of the black Osterhouts, but their image had been captured by a famous black photographer, turning up in a book by a renowned French semiotician. Then I learned that it was not just the shot of a random black Osterhout family in Harlem, but of Van Der Zee's own maternal aunts and uncle, extended family from Lenox, Mass. We were talking about the 
African-American Osterhouts as this middle-class existence of the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, But you also made the comment that to some extent, that family was doing better than the white side of your family in in counterpoint. In my family, uh, in my particular branch, uh, uh, as I said, my great great grandfather was was working poor. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was was a butcher, and and later on a janitor and and crossing guard for the school and, mm-hmm. and what have you. So, but he was. Uh, Middle class. But prior to that part, because from 1653, is that what you said when people There's arrived? There's so many branches okay. of, of this family. Mm-hmm. But my particular branch, my grand, great-grandfather came out of Lackawack, Accord, town of Rochester, where I think you live, right? I live. Yeah, you yes. live right there. So so where the uh, Roundout Reservoir is now... Mm-hmm. That was Osterhout Farms up in there. Oh. And the one Osterhout of note, uh, who was uh, the father of uh, Ann Osterhout, who married uh, Theodore Edison, was uh, John Van Leuven uh, Osterhout. And he was a Harvard professor. And, and so that branch is probably uh, close, uh, very closely related to my branch. Okay. So on the same branch, you have mm-hmm. one, one Osterhout who's a Harvard professor, another Osterhout who's, who's working in the, in the woolen mill and picking up, you know, day work as a farm laborer. So, so there were Osterhout farms, uh, mm-hmm. some doing better than others, you know. There's still one a homestead. Matankunts uh, is right on the northern side of, of Accord, mm-hmm. 1703. That's the oldest structure that I've been able to find. That was. Have you been there? I have been there, yeah. Okay. And they had just sold it, and it's a beautiful little stone house, uh, and they were doing kind of a lousy job, you know, fixing mm. it up, which is sort of heartbreaking. I have yeah. a passion for stone houses, really born of going to school as an undergraduate at New Paltz. And um, coming upon historic Plenty Huguenot Street, of, of and Huguenot and houses. but yeah. interestingly, Accord supposedly has more stone houses per square mile than any place else in the country. Yeah. Well, the uh, uh, Route 209, mm-hmm. you know, is ba- was basically the yeah. border of of Indian country. So if you go back into the and into the 1600s and the Asophis Wars, uh, you know, Route 209 is 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 the border. You know, you go you go west. And the stone chambers, that's their tradition, the stone chambers of Native Americans. Right. Yeah. Right. So you go east, and and it's it's Europeans. You go you go west, and it's Native Americans. You know, at that time period. This is our last segment. Sorry to say, because I'm really fascinated by all of this. But what is what is your greatest surprise in in doing this work in uncovering different branches of your family? God, there's there's been so many surprises. It's hard to pick out uh, one. I think I think the uh, uh, the interconnections uh, that 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 have have come up between, uh, like I said, the commonalities. Uh, usually, you know, f- for a white man to to write about uh, race and and 
sort of the the elephant in the room, which is always slavery, mm-hmm. uh, is is. I can be unsure of myself. I can be uh, uncomfortable. Uh, I didn't know what I was getting into, so so I've I've reached out to a lot of people to to help me along with this. A lot of black scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and what was your discomfort, though? Why? I mean, we say uncomfortable, but we don't always follow it up. Um, I I think be I, I don't want to be. Um, Accused of cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, as an artist, I, I I can appropriate plenty, and I do appropriate mm-hmm. plenty. Uh, uh, in influences, you know, I try not to to rip rip anything off. Well, when it's not about oppression, it's considered the greatest form of flattery. Yes, <laughs> yes, know? and and yeah. that's you know, it, uh, I I feel a kinship. Okay. Uh, to to the Black Osterhouts, it may be a fictive kinship, but mm-hmm. it's a kinship, and and as this piece, like I say, I'm I'm couching this as a social sculpture. So so the the piece is continuing. It's not just the narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I I go and visit Donna Vanderzee. I'm buying another print. We have a great time together. You know, kidding that we're cousins yeah. and things like that. Uh, I'm working with the Church on the Hill in Lenox. To to put a a uh, a plaque up um, for all the sextons, the history of the sextons in that church. Uh, Elizabeth Goodman, a young young white woman who's the pastor of Church on the Hill. I wanted to uh, to honor David Osterhout in some way, and it was her suggestion to honor all the Sextons, which I thought was beautiful. You know, it's like so she goes. There's plenty of plaques honoring the the pastors, but mm-hmm. none honoring the Sextons. You mm. know, and and so so all this kind of stuff, you know, um, feeds into the piece as a whole. And I don't know how I'm I'm looking at a at a an exhibition I'm going to have in, in San Francisco at 500 Cap Street, uh, uh, David Ireland's old house, who was a friend of mine. And that's where I started my career in the 70s. So in a lot of ways, these things are coming full circle for me. Mm. You know, I, I did a piece in the 70s called Missionary, the Extended Family, a sculpture, uh, where I got to know a 12-year-old boy just out of the blue in 1978. So this piece is sort of taking the same form only now we have we have race involved mm-hmm. and and a, a history that that can be uncomfortable when when you find out uh, you come from a family of generational slave owners you know I went to the Goshen library and and uh, you know handled the slave receipts of the Jennings family you know the Sewards I found know? that 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 very intimate um, moment of Physically being able to touch some of these original things, and it's the upside and the downside of some of our historical societies not having financial resources. And the privilege that I had when I went to one in in the New Baltimore area in Hanakoi was researching an old stone house there and I found myself handling the original founding documents for the house with the wills and codices from 17 from the 1750s still written in pounds and shillings right right 
And here you are actually physically touching these documents, which really we should not be now. Well, with the but, white gloves, you know. <laughs> but uh, and, you some, find a, and some friendly places librarian. say don't do the white gloves <clears throat> because the white gloves, because the natural oils in our skin might help preserve the, you know, it's, yeah, it's know two that. sides of the same yeah. coin. But anyway, the point is, thank goodness it's preserved. Yes. Um, and it's it, it gives you a sense of intimacy when you're able to touch it. Touching the history, touching your family, what is, I asked you about the surprising part of this research. I'd like to know the, the most joyous part and the saddest revelation or something that came to you. Well, I think the the it's I don't know if it's sad or it's 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 just surprising that uh, you know you you hear other families that have kind of gone down a, a similar path like the DeWolfs family who went into their they were the largest slave traders in the United States and mm-hmm. and there's a woman in uh, in Texas uh, Sarah Brown who's dealing with her lineage through uh, George Washington being a slave owner mm-hmm. these are all rich people mm-hmm. what was so surprising who to, are still profiting from slavery. who are still profiting but what's so surprising is uh, we were never rich, the mm-hmm. Jennings or the or the Osterhouts, uh, at, at best uh, upper middle class or middle class, but plenty owned slaves. So the, the most surprising thing for me, I think, was was realizing that even a poor, per, poor white person uh, in the 1600s could have an African-American as a slave. So so that was 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 shocking to me. That You know, sometimes we even use these terms, and I do want you to stick with that point, but we use these terms, you know, could have a slave and everything, but we're really talking about holding another person in bondage. Yes, yes. And one group having the privilege of being able to do that, whatever privilege that is, and one group having not even the right to own their own person. Right, and not even based on economics, you mm-hmm. know, based purely on color. Yes. So, so because uh, that person was black, say in 1660, uh, a white person would have the right to mm-hmm. have complete authority over their lives, uh, just like livestock. Yes, you know, uh, it is. Yeah, it's just like livestock. So, so which should tell us something about the way we treat livestock yes, too. But that's but the pervasiveness show. of it yeah. was was surprising to me. Yes, yeah. and and the the most joyous thing that you think you've I think the most joyous thing is meeting Donna, uh, <laughs> and and having a, a relationship with her that that is is based on this what most people would call effective kinship, but that's is beautiful to me and so much fun. You say the most joyous thing is me- meeting Donna. I I'm going to just interject how I met Donna Van Der Zee. Um, I was a young reporter assigned to cover her husband, James Van Der Zee, who I think was about 90 at the time that I met them, and I arrived at the door. Um, they had this penthouse on, I think it's either Columbus or Amsterdam yeah, Avenue. Yeah. And Donna greeted me. James is, is 90, and Donna greets me 
a woman about one third his age in a string bikini to welcome me to their home because she's sunbathing on on the penthouse porch. And I said, oh, my goodness, James is a very happy man. And indeed, he was. So <laughs> I bet he was. But she is a very joyous spirit. Yeah, so she's um, great. I did not know the age difference at the time I, I went into this investigation. So I, I reached out to uh, to a gallery mm-hmm. finding out if Miss Mrs. Vanderzee was, was alive. Still alive. And of course, she wrote me back like, yeah, I'm still alive. <laughs> Let's talk. Well, look, um, Mike Osterhout, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been a joy to have you and keep a surprise. Keep the story going and keep a surprise. Well, thank you, Janice. It's been my pleasure. Staying home for COVID-19, I'm Janice Adams. For more about today's show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved. Trying to make it real compared to what...